Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. In this episode, we'll introduce you to siblings Merwin and Louise. They are two tiny sycamore seeds living in a world filled with dinosaurs, meteors, and volcanoes. Merwin and Louise are the creation of author and illustrator Brian Selznick, who is here today to discuss his widely anticipated new novel, Big Tree. The sibling story began with an idea from filmmaker Steven Spielberg. It evolved into an epic adventure. Brian is a number one New York Times best-selling author and illustrator whose books have sold millions of copies, garnered countless awards worldwide, and been translated into more than 35 languages. He broke open the novel form with his genre-defying thematic trilogy, beginning with the invention of Hugo Cabret, which was adapted into Martin Scorsese's Academy Award-winning movie, Hugo. Brian is also the author of several other award-winning titles for young people. I'm delighted to welcome him back to the Scholastic Reads podcast. Hi, Brian. Welcome back to the program. Hi, I'm so happy to be back with you. Thanks so much. Tell us about the genesis of Big Tree. Oh my gosh. This has a very, very unusual story. Most of my books have some strange idea about something I want to explore, and I spend several years trying to figure out what the story is. But this was the first time that someone reached out and asked me to write a story for them. And it didn't even start as a book. It started as a movie. I got a phone call from Steven Spielberg asking me to come meet him because he wanted me to write a movie based on an idea that he had. And I was, as you can imagine, very nervous and very excited. And the idea that he had was that he realized he had never seen a movie told from the point of view of nature, a movie about nature from nature's point of view, talking potentially singing, dancing plants. And I thought to myself, well, maybe we've never seen that movie because it's not possible to make it. Do we want to see talking, singing, dancing plants? I'm not entirely sure, but it was such an interesting idea and I was so excited to meet him. So I flew out to California and I kind of, I kind of believed in the back of my mind that that one meeting would be the one time I would ever talk to him and we would all realize that this doesn't really work. But the conversation was so fun and inspiring that he invited me to come back the next month. And I ended up working on this screenplay for a couple of years with him and co-producer Chris Melodandry. And what I ended up deciding on, along with Stephen and Chris, was a story about these two little sycamore seeds, who I named Merwin and Louise, And they were going to be doing what seeds do, which is trying to find a safe place to grow, but also at the same time, trying to figure out how they are supposed to save the world. Because because one of them is hearing voices and getting mysterious dreams. 
And I was not doing any artwork for the movie. It was going to be professional animators. And the pandemic hit and it became very clear that the movie was never going to happen for many different reasons, but you know, all understandable. The pandemic changed everything. But I had fallen in love with these characters and the story. And I reached out to Spielberg and Melodandry and asked them if I could have permission to take the story and make it into a book. Even though it's not going to be a movie, I thought maybe it would be a really good book. I love the story. And so I spent about the next two years working on the book version of this story with my editor, Tracy Mack at Scholastic. And one of the most interesting transformations that happened as it went from the idea of a movie to the idea of a book is that when I was writing the screenplay, I knew that I wanted everything to be based in science. Like everything that happens in the story needs to be based on science. Like plants can actually communicate with each other. So having the plants talk was fine, but I didn't want the trees to like get up and walk around on their roots because trees can't do that. But we all had believed when it was a movie that the seeds and the plants were going to need to have faces. So we were trying to figure out where like the eyeballs and the mouth was, were going to go. And it just, it looked good, but it was just always a little silly and goofy and a little odd. But when it was time to make the book, I suddenly became the artist. We had professional animators working on the movie. I wasn't doing any drawings. And I realized that I needed to extend my rule about science to the pictures. So the reason the seeds looked a little silly with faces is because seeds don't have faces. And so I made the seeds in the book look like actual sycamore seeds, which look like little spikes with some fluff on the end. And the fluff is actually there scientifically to help it move through the air and travel from one place to another. So making the fluff become a little bit like arms and legs and be able to walk on it a little bit is based on science. So I went and I figured out a way to tell the story in written words and then the picture sequences that I discovered when I was making The Invention of Hugo Cabret which themselves have a connection with the cinema and put all of that together to make the book that is Big Tree. And it's such a beautiful read. You are known for novels that are illustrated. How did you happen upon this unusual storytelling path? I think I've always had a visual mind. Like I think visually, I see things very clearly in my head. But when I'm drawing, I always start by writing what I'm going to draw. Like I always first describe what it is I'm going to draw. And so I learned so much over the 15 years of my career where I was illustrating books for other people and writing a couple of short books myself, like the Houdini box. But mostly I was illustrating for other writers and I, and I learned a lot. But when I made the invention of Hugo Cabret, I realized that because the story is about someone who made silent movies, George Melies, that maybe there's a key in cinema that I could explore in the page turns and the pictures in a book. And of course, comic book artists and graphic novelists have made the connection between cinema and images for a very long time, but the discovery was pretty new to me. And 
I was interested in what happens, and I've always been interested in what happens when you actually turn the page in a book, right? Because you can go from one moment to the next. A mentor and friend of mine named Remy Charlotte wrote an essay called A Page is a Door about how when you turn the page in a picture book, everything that comes after it could be new and different and surprising. And so I also found myself thinking about where the wild things are and by Maurice Sendak and what happens when we get to the wild rumpus which I'm sure all of our listeners can imagine in their minds. And when we get to the wild rumpus, there's no more words. There's no more white space. It's just eight pages of pictures that we move through on our, at our own pace. And so I thought, okay, well, one wild rumpus in a 32-page book is so amazing. What if there was a 20-page wild rumpus every five pages in a 600-page book? And so that's sort of where the beginning of that idea came which was from developing Hugo. And then I did something different with it for Wonderstruck, where I used the pictures to try to parallel the experience of a child who's born deaf, who experiences most of their life visually. Even the language they use, sign language, is a visual language. And then in the Marvels, I used the pictures to create a kind of dream or memory sequence that has uh, ramifications in the second half of the story, which is all told with words. And so for Big Tree, I was taking all of these ideas, plus some more classic illustrated novels like Alice in Wonderland or Winnie the Pooh, which themselves inspired other books I did, like The Doll People and and the sequels, where on some pages, the words and the pictures appear together and interact with each other. And then on top of that, in Big Tree, I was thinking about the very last page of Where the Wild Things Are, where Max has gotten back from his adventures and he's back in his room and his mother has left the soup waiting for him, even though she sent him to bed without any dinner. And again, I'm sure all your listeners can imagine turning that last page and it says on a big blank white page, and it was still hot. And there's no picture because I think Maurice understood that the viewer could imagine what the love of that moment looks like. That to me means that his mother still loves him, even though he drives her crazy and they have fights. She still loves him no matter what. But those five words on that big white page underscore how important that idea is. So when you flip through Big Tree, you'll also see sequences just of words and short sentences or lines of dialogue on white space sometimes to indicate that we're inside a dream or sometimes the conversation is happening between the earth and one of the seeds to to make it feel like it has a lot of space and a lot of importance. That's amazing. And also you can open up the book flat to look at the images across the spread. Yes. The drawings go all the way across like the wild rumpus uh, on, on almost all of them so that, you know, in a graphic novel or a comic book, the pages are broken up usually into boxes and then you read it from upper left to lower right in a way that parallels the way you read a book of of text from upper left to lower right if you read English, Hebrew or Japanese or Chinese, you might go another direction. But the pictures are usually in smaller boxes. So for me, what was interesting is to take every, essentially to take every one of those boxes that you would have in a graphic novel or a comic book and make it one entire spread. So that it actually, and that counts as two pages in the numbering of a book. So every one drawing actually takes two pages. And so if you're going to decide to draw something, 
using this idea, you have to make sure that it is of importance because it's going to take up a lot of real estate. That's partially why these books are so heavy and so long is because of the amount of space that the pictures take up. But again, it gives the book a sense of weight and volume, and then it allows the reader to feel proud that they could read a 600-page book sometimes in one sitting. Now we have the story of the seedlings, the siblings, Louise and Merwin. What research did you do in order to tell what is really a complex story? Yeah, I started at the New York Botanical Garden. I reached out to someone there who, who was a paleobotanist. And a paleobotanist is someone who studies ancient plants. And Jamie Boyer uh, knew all about the types of plants that were alive on the planet during the prehistoric era. But what was interesting to me was that there's not actually that much of a fossil record for the plant life because plants are soft and they, when they die, they mostly dissolve and disappear and become soil and other things as opposed to what happens when a dinosaur dies and the bones are solid and are able to fossilize. So some plants left uh, impressions that became fossils in the mud so we know what they look like. We've all heard about petrified wood where some wood turns to stone. But he had a really good sense and he studied the types of plants. And he was the one who actually introduced me to the idea of fossil species, which are plants that are alive today that have been alive since the time of the dinosaurs. So I think we often forget, if we knew, that a lot of the, the living things on our planet right now are as old or older than the dinosaurs. Alligators and crocodiles have been around since before the time of the dinosaurs. So in a, little, in a way, it's a little bit like seeing dinosaurs when you see alligators. But a lot of trees like sycamores and ginkgos and ferns and mosses have been around for sometimes for as long as there's been life on earth just about. And I wanted the story to take place in a world that looked like our world. So when you begin Big Tree, it looks like we're in a forest today, but then you eventually discover there's a dinosaur walking by and you realize we're 66 million years in the past. It was Jamie Boyer who pointed me in the direction of the sycamore tree and this connection with the past. And then I just started reading a ton of books about how plants grow and about the mycorrhizal system, which is the fungi that connect the roots of, of trees in a forest that makes the, essentially makes the individual trees into a real community. And so all of these ideas I found that interested me, that I found intriguing, I found ways to turn them into characters right? Because I wanted to present real science or I, the ideas behind real science. I, I should make it very clear. I'm aware that plants don't speak English and like walk around on their fluff. But the anthropomorphizing that I'm doing is all, as I mentioned, based in scientific ideas. So when I learned that there is this fungal system that connects all the roots of the trees in a forest, and it tells, essentially lets the trees know what's going on all over the place, that's such an interesting idea. What would a character be like? Like what kind of character would represent this mycorrhizal system? So I made these three little tiny mushrooms who are representations of the fungal system beneath the soil. And they pop up as characters that are known as the ambassadors. 
because they share information with the trees about what's happening all over the forest. So it was all of the research that I that I did that I found helpful and interesting that I thought could be personified in some fashion that then made its way into the book. And what makes this particular story so important and resonant now? Well, when I was making up the story, and I knew that Steven Spielberg had this idea about telling a story about nature from nature's point of view, it was because we're facing a real threat to the environment today, right? The world is in real danger. And I think that's what made him want to see a story about plants from the point of view of the plants. And that's why I decided to set the story at the end of the Cretaceous era, right at the time of the, when the dinosaurs were alive. Because as many of the listeners will know, an asteroid was heading towards the planet. And when it hit the earth, it destroyed all the dinosaurs and almost all life on earth. And the idea that I could set the story in a moment in time that had a, an existential threat to the planet felt like a really good parallel for the kind of threat that we're facing today. But right now, of course, it's not an asteroid, it's us. We're the ones that are causing the potential death uh, of the planet. One of the really important things that Jamie Boyer said to me in our very first meeting was when we talk about the earth being in danger, that we're going to, that the planet's going to you know, die. He said, it's not actually the earth that's in danger. The earth has been covered in fire. It's been covered in floods. It's been covered in ice. It's been hit by other planets and it always survives because for the planet, a couple million years is like a few minutes to us or a few seconds to us. Like that's how big the time scale is. So the earth is going to be fine. The earth will survive. What might not survive is us, is people. And so if all the people on the planet die, the earth doesn't really know, and the earth will just keep going. And other things will come, you know, sprout, and there'll be plants, and other things will be alive, and the earth will keep going. But hearing it from that perspective was really, really interesting to me. And so I gave that idea to the earth itself, who in Big Tree we hear, we hear from. Again, like the, the thing that's most important to me is telling a story that is fun to read and has characters that you care about. I like the idea that if you do like the story and the characters, that there is real science you can then learn about, which I talk about at the end of the book in an afterword, and that we can remember that there is actually something we can do, even though we often feel tiny and helpless like the little sycamore seeds do. There are things that we can actually do, even if they feel small, to help make the planet a better, healthier place. What do you hope young readers will take away from Big Tree and the story of Merwin and Louise? I really do hope that they take away a love for the characters, because that's the main thing I feel about Merwin and Louise. Merwin, who's very worried about facts and rules, is named after a poet named W.S. Merwin, who inspired me a lot. And Louise, who's very dreamy and open, is herself named after a scientist named Dr. Louise Colville, who studies seeds in Britain. And so the two characters, in many ways, are different sides of 
myself and I think a lot of people as we sort of struggle between the desire to control everything around us and then the hope that we can be open and listen to the voices around us and be open to new ideas. But so much of the book is about stopping and listening to the world around you. So I I certainly would love the idea that young readers could finish the story and then go out into the world and look at trees in a, in a different way, to look at nature in a different way, to listen to the world around them, and to keep learning about how nature works and what our place in nature is, right? Because we're, we're all connected. That's another big part of Big Tree, is how everything is connected. We think, oh, I'm different from this person, and these types of people are different from me, and those families aren't related to me, and that nature isn't part of the world that I know. But if you look at yourself and then you imagine a circle getting a little bit bigger, encompassing your family and your friends, and then you imagine a circle a little bit bigger and encompassing the community where you live and the school you go to and the people who come to that school, but then you look at it bigger and you look at the state that you live in, and then you look at the country that you live in, and then you look at the a continent that you live in, and then you look at the planet that you live in, eventually you're going to notice that we're all actually part of the same place. And we are all really very, very deeply connected. And so I, I like the idea that, you know, this book was a reminder of that for me. And so I, uh, I hope that it can be a reminder of that for other people as well. Tell us about the audiobook, which is narrated by Meryl Streep, of all people. How did that come to be? <laughs> yeah, it's really amazing. And I hope everybody gets a chance to listen to Meryl Streep read the story. As I finished the book, I got an email from Paul Gagne, who produces the audiobooks for Scholastic, saying that they wanted to make an audiobook. We had made an audiobook for Hugo, and it seems very challenging and maybe impossible to make audiobooks for a lot of the work that I do because it has they have so many pictures. But for Hugo, what we decided to do was have me write new text that replaces the sequences of pictures, but then sometimes take out text from the book that we could replace itself with uh, sound sequences like footsteps and bells ringing and trains coming into the station and then add music and have the narrator read it. So I was ready to write a new script for Big Tree that would do a similar thing where I would write new text for the picture sequences and take out descriptions of the dinosaurs roaring and footsteps because we could actually hear them now in the audiobook. And he asked me who I wanted to narrate. And when this story was supposed to be a movie, I secretly imagined Meryl Streep reading The Voice of the Earth. Like, wouldn't that have been so amazing to have her be the the whole planet? So I said to him, I want Meryl Streep. (laughs) And he, being realistic, said, that's very, very unlikely. And I said, I know, but let's try. And so I sent a copy of my book with a note to Meryl Streep about how much her work has meant to me, how much I've heard her voice, how long I've heard her voice in my head relating to this story. And really just having her read my book would be an honor. And she read it and she loved it. And she said, yes. And so I had this extraordinary day, Paul and some other folks in the recording booth with Meryl Streep as she sat and read the adaptation that I wrote of Big Tree. And 
when she finished, she turned to us and she was crying and we were crying. And it was just one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had because I wrote all of that. I made all of it up, but it felt a little bit like I was hearing my own story for the first time. She did 25 different voices for the characters. So I felt like I was meeting the characters for the first time in a lot of ways. And then Ernest Troost, a really brilliant composer, wrote music for the audiobook. And Steve Sayarto made these incredible sound effects that come in and out as Meryl Streep is narrating. And the audiobook is now available along with the physical book. And I love the idea that you can read either of these and get essentially get my story, in, but in different forms. But they also work really well together in interesting ways. And so I hope everybody gets a chance to enjoy what Meryl Streep does on this, because it's, it's as extraordinary as you would imagine Meryl Streep could be. Congratulations, Brian. <laughs> I'm so happy for you. And, oh, thank you. And happy for all of the listeners like me. Finally, where do you envision Louise and Merwin in 100 years? Well, that's a very interesting question. And usually when people ask me what happened to my characters after the end of my book, I say, well, I told you everything I know, right? Like everything I know is in the book. So anything that you want to have happen to the characters afterwards is up to you. And it's a little tricky because you'll see when you read the story or listen to, listen to it on the audiobook, there's a very, very dramatic, somewhat scary climax to this story. And I think the fates of Merwin and Louise in many ways are left up in the air, though I try to indicate what their legacy is, right? Because sometimes we have to do things for ourselves for our, the people we know or for the people who are in danger right now. But sometimes we also have to think about the people who aren't born yet. We have to think about the people in the future, right? And I think a lot of what Louise and Merwin are doing at the end of the book is thinking about not just themselves, but in a, in a more, maybe in a more direct way, the future of life on earth. And so their actions are about the future. And I start Big Tree with a quote from a poem by W.S. Merwin, who I named Merwin after. And the quote is, on the last day of the world, I would want to plant a tree. Someone sent me that quote at the beginning of the pandemic, and I was feeling so hopeless and freaked out that it actually helped me feel better because it's a quote to me about hope because even if it's the last day of the world, right? Like the world is going to end tomorrow. The idea that this person would want, this poet would still want to plant a tree means that even in the face of disaster, I still would want to be hopeful. So it's a way to me of saying, never give up hope. And so for me, maybe part of what Merwin and Louise are saying about the future, whether it's a hundred years in the future for them, or a million years, or 66 million years later, because the story takes place 66 million years in the past from us, that maybe what they're saying about their future is that they want to stay hopeful. So if we think about our future and where we would be in 100 years, 
sometimes you could think about it and look at the news and hear what's going on and think like, oh my gosh, this doesn't sound good at all. And it doesn't. But how do you stay hopeful? And so maybe there are things we can do and things we can talk about that can keep us hopeful for a hundred years into the future. Thank you so much, Brian. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, Suzanne. It was so fun to talk. We'll leave you with a clip of Meryl Streep reading Brian's new illustrated novel, Big Tree. Startled, all of Louise's brothers and sisters looked toward her and fell right back to sleep. All of them, that is, except Merwin, who had shouted in the first place, Louise, Merwin said, more gently this time. You're talking in your sleep again. I was dreaming. You're always dreaming, said her brother. I was dreaming about the stars. I know I could hear you. I dreamed the stars were calling to me. I think they're trying to tell me something, but they're very hard to understand. Merwin sighed. Go back to sleep, Louise. But Louise was now wide awake. She wriggled, though not very much, because a hundred siblings were crammed into the seed ball with her. My great thanks again to author and illustrator Brian Selznick for joining me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about Big Tree and Brian's many other titles, check the show notes or go to scholastic.com slash podcast. Special thanks to producer Constance Gibbs, sound engineer Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.